You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. If you guys were with us last week, you remember that last week, Pastor Chris wrapped up a series looking at the gift of rest, or really what God's heart was behind the Sabbath. Now, if you weren't with us, I highly encourage you to go back and look at that series, because as Pastor Chris was developing or unfolding God's heart behind the Sabbath, he really began to tap into something incredibly appealing. Something super desirable. And I say it's appealing and desirable for two reasons. As Pastor Chris showed, first and foremost, we were wired for rest. When God sat down to create us at the beginning of the world, he intentionally set us out to be people who needed to be reinvigorated, recreated, refreshed. And that's why we have to rest. But I think the other reason that the appealing and desirable nature of this rest series kind of lingered in our community is because if we're honest with ourselves, many of us feel perpetually stuck doing the opposite of rest with the bulk of our time. Many of us feel perpetually stuck not resting, but working. Many of us feel perpetually stuck on the go, constantly feeling the need to produce or contribute or do something. And the problem with that is when we start to think about rest and work, it's easy for us to begin to think as work as the evil stepchild of rest or the evil twin of rest. Like, oh, rest is good. Oh, here comes work. But what we need to understand is when God sat down to create us, not only did he wire us for rest, he also intentionally wired us to work. And therefore, if we are ever going to experience the full, abundant, good lives God created us to experience, we can't just talk about rest. We have to understand how God created us to work. We have to talk about how we spend the other six days, if you will. And so what we're going to do for the next few weeks is we're going to begin to dig deep into this idea of work and try to understand what is God's heart behind work and how, most importantly, do we work in a way that will allow us to genuinely flourish in all that we say and do. Well, today as we kick off that series, we're going to address the most fundamental question concerning work. I mean, do you remember when you were in school? I always think about this when I start a sermon series. But I always hated the first two or three weeks of a class. Anybody else ever do this? When you're in college, specifically. Because it was all theory. Remember this? And you're like, I didn't sign up for theory. I want to know the nuts and bolts. I got to get in this. But the teachers would always respond, we have to understand the why behind the what. Before we start producing, we need to understand why we're doing it. And so this morning, the most fundamental question we need to address when it comes to the issue of work is, why do we work at all? What is the motivation? What is the purpose behind our work? Now, I would imagine if you were to ask most people, including most of us in this room, why we work, you're going to get something like this bumper sticker that I came across. I owe, I owe, so it's off to work I go. 
Can I get an amen on this one, church? Because the truth is, and we all know this, right? There are bills to pay and mouths to feed, and there ain't nothing in this world for free. Anybody under the age of 40 know that reference? Or over the age of 40 know that reference? No, I figured as much. Yeah, I I caught you, Jeremy. I knew you were going to be with me on that one. But the thing is here, before we dismiss this, money, we need to understand, money is not inherently evil. Money is good. It allows us to provide for our families. Money allows us to be able to support community at large. It it helps for the betterment of society. Money is not inherently evil. And those of you who are beginning to jump to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, just know I read it already. I'm aware of what it says, and it specifically says the love of money is a root of all evil, not the root, and it's not money itself. Okay, some of you were going there. I know it. But we need to understand money is not inherently evil, but we also need to understand money cannot fundamentally be the reason we work. And you know this. Deep down, you understand this, especially those of you who are retired or at least have retired friends, because many of you have expressed to me that even though you have all the money you need to not have to work, you're often bored or unhappy. Or even more than that, if money was the sole motivation for our work, why on earth do Jeff Bezos and Warren Buffett consistently show up to the office? They are in no short supply of cash, right? It can't just be money. But, But even more than that, even more than that, if money is the sole reason we work, why is it that some people who make ridiculous amounts of money are in jobs that make them incredibly unhappy and therefore are just dissatisfied in life? Why is it that unemployment is so gut-wrenching? The simple answer is because we all know deep down, while money is important, money isn't everything. Money is not the primary motivator for our work. So I want to just take that off the table and then again ask the question, so what is the primary motivator of our work? Why do we work? What is the purpose of our work? Well, believe it or not, the answer to that question is literally on page one of your Bibles. And so this morning, I invite you to open to literal page one of your Bible. I told them they didn't even need to throw the slide up for this one, okay? Page one, Genesis chapter one. As you're turning to Genesis chapter 1, if you aren't familiar with this section of Scripture, you're going to notice it is the account of creation. It is the story of how God brought the universe intentionally, methodically into existence out of nothing. And so it's the story of how when God spoke, creation just happened. He spoke and he said, let there be light, and there was light. He spoke, and the waters divided from the land. He spoke, and life began to spring up in forms of plants, animals, birds, creatures. And then as you get to the end of chapter 1, it hones in on the pinnacle of creation, humanity itself. And in one particular verse, we are given the backdrop to God's intentional, methodical thought in creating us. That verse is Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. We're going to throw it on the screen for you, but it says this. Towards the end of creation, God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Now, 
Before I unpack this, I just want you to look at this one verse. Just consider what this verse shows us. Beyond the specifics of what it says, just think about this. This is a literal glimpse into the mind of God when he sat down to create us. You can actually read God's thoughts. I don't know if that's ever hit you before. That's kind of crazy. But even more than that, this one verse is the answer to one of life's greatest questions. Why am I here? What is the purpose of life? Why do I exist? It's in this one verse. And look at the answer. Twofold. There's two reasons. First, we exist to be the image of God, the reflection of God to creation. But second, we exist to work. Specifically, we exist to rule over creation. Now, to be the image of something, you all know this, right? It means you display the attributes of something else, right? So to be the image of God means we display the attributes of God, or at least we are intended to display the attributes of God. And if all you have so far is Genesis chapter 1, as you're reading through the story, what is the one attribute we see clear as day about God in Genesis 1? That he is not a do-nothing creator. He is an active worker who's methodical and creative and intentional. And he's not just sitting on a couch doing nothing, but he's engaged and he's active. And therefore, if we are to be the image of God, we have to recognize we were created in the image of worker God. Therefore, we were created to be workers. Specifically, how we are to work is fleshed out in the next section. We are to rule over creation. The fancy word for this is we are to be his vice regents in the world. But since we never use that language, let's use the more imprecise word of stewards. We were created to steward creation. The problem with steward, though, is it often implies that you just kind of sit there and don't make decisions. You don't do anything. You just handle what's in front of you. But as we see, especially as we flip into chapter 2, we aren't just God's stewards of creation. We aren't just here to manage his creation. He also invites us to be co-contributors to it. I don't know if you've ever stopped and thought about this, but God invites you to participate in the ongoing work of creation. Flip over literally to the next page. Look at Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read the story to you. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared in the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and trees that were good for food. In the middle of the garden was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then, if you skip down to verse 15, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. Why? To work it and to take care of it. 
So again, here in verse 15, in this, in this second version of the creation telling, a little more detailed version of the creation story, we find again explicitly clear that mankind was created to work and to care for or steward creation. But as the story goes on, especially starting in verse 18, we find out that man isn't just a steward. Man is also a co-contributor. Look at what God invites mankind into. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone, so I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Looking at this verse, especially the highlighted section, again, you're going to notice that God explicitly invites mankind into co-contributing. How? Specifically, mankind is invited to define the reality around him with words. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about why did God have him name animals? It's a very odd thing. Part of that is Adam is allowed to contribute. He's allowed to define the reality he sees himself in. That's a co-contributor role. But it's not just here. As the story of Genesis goes, and frankly, as the story of humanity goes, we see mankind has consistently contributed to the ongoing work of creation more than any other creature. Be it from our music to our monuments, from our buildings to our bombs, to tools and other technological advancements, mankind has consistently contributed to the ongoing work of creation, and we have shaped the world in some positive ways and in some negative ways. And that's because that was what we were created to do. Now, what you need to understand, though, is we're only in Genesis chapter 2, at this point, there's no evil in the world. There's no sin. There's no brokenness. There's no corruption of the system. Humanity, along with the rest of creation, is defined as good. Good is exactly as God intended it to be. And among all of creation, one of the clearest things we see is that human contribution played a, or played a part. Meaning human work was God-ordained, God-created, God-intended, and most importantly, it is defined as good. So if we were to simply say, rest is good and work is the evil stepchild, that would just be completely wrong. They are the same, they're the same coin, just one side of the coin, if this makes more sense to you. Therefore, fundamentally, we need to understand that work is not a bad thing because it is deeply woven into the fabric of who we are and what it means to be human. But more than that, if that's true, then the only way we are ever going to experience the full, abundant, good lives that God offers us is if we understand that work is not primarily about economics. Economics have not played a part in the story up until now. Neither, has, uh, just, neither is work just something we do to pass the time, or is it something we do to simply try to improve our lives? Fundamentally, what we see is that work should be about reflecting our Creator and living fully into what it means to be human. 
Our work then, whatever it is, whether it is something we are paid for or whether it's a job or just something we do around the house, whatever it is, our work is intended to be a God-honoring effort of human contribution to the ongoing work of creation. Everybody catch that mouthful? Because if you didn't, that's okay. Let me simplify it even more. Work in its most basic sense, as God intended it, work is to be worship. Work is intended to be a God-honoring human activity. And this idea that work is worship is really not new or novel. Frankly, this has been talked about for thousands of years, and you see this all throughout the Old Testament. One quick example of this actually comes out of Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Can we throw that back up there real quick? This word in 2.15, to work, is the Hebrew word abad. And abad is a really interesting word that's translated a bunch of different ways into English and is used with quite regularity throughout the Old Testament, as you're going to see. And it's translated a bunch of different ways. You, You notice here, sometimes it's translated to serve, sometimes it's translated to labor, to work, to do, to till. But it's often a good chunk of the time translated to worship. And that's because this word abad is the exact same word in Exodus chapter 3 that is used to describe the back-breaking labor of the Israelites as they built bricks for Pharaoh. It's also the exact same word in Exodus 35 to describe the work of building the tabernacle. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 4 to describe the fine craftsmanship of the linen workers. So it's got this broad range of terms with regards to work, but it's also in Exodus chapter 3, just a couple chapters after the backbreaking labor thing, the same word God uses to describe the activity of the Israelites that will take place when he rescues them out of Egypt. They're not going to work. They're going to celebrate. They're going to rejoice. They're going to worship. More than that, if you go back to 1 Chronicles, you're going to notice it's the same word Solomon uses to describe the duties of the priests as they lead the community in corporate worship. In other words, why this matters is whether it's making bricks or crafting fine linen or leading others in worship, the Old Testament authors present a seamless understanding of work and worship. So yes, abad has distinct nuances in its various contexts, but we need to understand there is an intrinsic link in Old Testament thought between our work and our worship. The two should not be viewed separately, and therefore to make this even more explicit, what we do in here, church, is to be what we do out there. There should not be this sense that we go to worship on Sunday and we go to work on Monday. God didn't intend that. When God sat down to create us, he intentionally made us, he wired us, so that in all that we say, in all that we do, however we spend our time, we were created to worship him. And so it doesn't matter if you spend the bulk of your time behind a pulpit or behind a desk. It doesn't matter if you spend the bulk of your time in a classroom or in a doctor's office. If you spend the bulk of your time with a hammer in your hand or a spreadsheet in your face, you were created to worship. 
You were created to magnify God, to make his name great, to put a smile on his face, however you want to define worship. That was your purpose. And so, whenever you go to work, and whatever it is you find yourself doing, you need to understand not only are you reflecting the very nature of who God created you to be, but you are also, or at least should be, a co-contributor to the ongoing work of creation in the world. So let me tie this all together. The primary reason we work, remember that's the question we're after today. What is the ultimate why? Why are we doing this? Why do we get up every morning and head out the door? Why do we continue to take care of these chores around the house? Why do we continue to pick up our kids? Why do we continue to do all these different things? Recognize it's not about a paycheck. Recognize it's not about a longing for self-improvement. Fundamentally, the reason we work is not even a desire to provide for the betterment of society. Mind you, all of those things, economics, self-improvement, betterment of society, those are all things that should flow from our work. And we're going to talk about that in the next few weeks. Those, are, those should be the results of our work. But fundamentally, the reason we work, the why, if you will, is ultimately because we exist to bring honor and glory to God above all else with all that we say and all that we do. Now, I I don't know about you, but the truth is for me, this is not the way I live my life. This is not the way I engage my normal day-to-day duties. I do not wake up in the morning and think, Lord, how do I honor you today? I want to make sure that when 1 a.m. comes and my daughter starts crying and I have to go put her back down, the last thing on my mind is, Lord, this is an opportunity to honor you as I care for my kid. Nope. It's, Lord, what do I got to do to get her to sleep right now? Or when I'm in one of those frustrating moments, those projects at work that seem to never stop and you're just in this cycle of like, why? This isn't even my job. You ever express that? It's easy to get frustrated. But if I could just begin to shift my mindset and begin to look at whatever it is that I find myself doing is now an opportunity for me to honor the Lord, those mundane, seemingly pointless, boring activities I find myself doing finally have meaning, finally have purpose, finally matter. They may not matter to anybody else, but they matter to the Lord. Even more than that, just begin to think about this. If you could wrap your mind around this idea that you exist in all that you say and all that you do to honor the Lord, imagine how that would begin to shape the way you engage your coworkers, especially your obnoxious coworkers or your overtaxing boss. The real sad thing is my coworkers are beginning to be like, oh, that's how we deal with him. But even more than that, let's say you run a business What would it begin to look like for you if when you started to think about how you're managing your business, above all else, above the mighty dollar, your primary motivation was how do I make sure that my business honors the Lord? Whether it's through the managing of your employees, the work you do with your vendors, the clients, or the way you even produce your products. How would that one simple idea begin to revolutionize the way you engage your day? It may be terrifying in some respects, But just begin to think about that. Or let's go for those of you who don't have the typical nine to five. Maybe you're retired. Maybe you get to be a stay-at-home mom. Maybe you're disabled. Whatever it is. It doesn't mean you don't work. 
You still have groceries to prepare. You still have meals to cook. You still got to chase after kids. You still got to do yard work. You still got to pick up your clothes, right? Your mom, no matter how long ago she's been saying it, is still echoing in your ear, clean up after yourself, and it's just nagging at you. But you got to realize that even those small, mundane, day-to-day activities, those are opportunities for you to continue to honor the Lord. Again, none of this is new. None of this is necessarily novel, right? None of this is revolutionary. This has been talked about for thousands of years. But I'll tell you this. If we could begin to just have some minor tweaks in our own thinking, minor tweaks in the way we engaged our work on a regular basis to move towards this, where we began to see all of our activities as opportunities of worship, as opportunities to please the audience of one, I think the results are going to be revolutionary. As I already mentioned, my hope with this entire series, this is just week one, and we're going to unpack this idea of work a lot more in weeks to come. But my whole hope in this series is, as I said, to help connect what we do in here with what we do out there. And so you're going to notice, I'm trying to make some minor tweaks to the way we do this. And one minor tweak, this is the second time I'm going to, we're going to reference the bulletin in this service. This never happens. But I want you to pull out your bulletin. This is like the office staff are getting so excited. We never talk about the bulletins. But you're going to notice as you open it, in the very front section on this tear-off, there's this section called car talk questions. The idea behind this, again, is to help you connect what we do in here with what we do out there. And so the idea is I drew up some questions, questions that I think might allow you to begin to take what we've talked about in here and continue to chew on them as you go out. The name car talk comes from this idea that I'm hoping that when you get in your car, you have something to talk about. See what I did there? It's a very creative title, very creative. But even more importantly, you don't have to use this just at the car talk, obviously. You could use this in your own devotional time if you so choose. You could use this at the dinner table. You can use this in the bathroom. I don't care, and I don't need to know. But the whole idea is just to help you to continue to chew on this idea of what would it look like to honor God with your life. And then on the back side, I wrote a simple prayer. A simple prayer that the idea is you could tear this thing out, you can leave it in your car, you could put it on your mirror, you can, I don't know, put it on your desk. And therefore, when you get into your car tomorrow morning and you drive to work, the idea is that you can read this prayer and have an attempt at focusing your day and saying, Lord, how do I honor you today? Or if you're like me, you put it on your desk and it's going to be used to refocus you throughout the day, because odds are I wander from this mission throughout the day. And it's an opportunity to refocus. But again, use it, don't use it, that's okay. Like, I'm not going to grade you on this. It's just a way for you to continue to engage what we do in here with what we do out there. Because as I said today, none of this is novel, none of this is new, but I genuinely believe it has the potential to be revolutionary. I genuinely believe this will not only begin to affect your life, but it will begin to affect the spheres around you. Because when God came and he rescued us, when God saved us through Jesus Christ, he came to redeem all of us, not just our souls, but our day-to-day activities, including our rest and including our work. And when we have been impacted directly by Jesus Christ, our lives are never the same, and it's not just for us. 
Because when we begin to be in sync with him, when we begin to receive good gifts from him, it naturally begins to affect the rest of society and ripple out from there. And your coworkers who don't know the Lord are going to begin to notice something drastic shifting within you. Even though for you it's the minorest, that's not a word, smallest (laughs) tweak. The smallest of tweaks, it's going to begin to have a huge ripple effect. And so my charge to you, church, this week is this. In all that you say and all that you do, may you seek to honor and glorify the Lord. May you seek to put a smile on his face. May you seek to make his name great. Or more importantly, even simpler than that, may you begin to truly experience work as God intended it. Let's pray. Father, we give you honor, glory, and praise for you are a good God, a God who continues to pursue us even when we continue to mess up your plans. Lord, we recognize the heart behind this work is the heart that we desire to tap into because it's how you wired us. We want to experience this gift of work. But Lord, there's stuff that goes on often in our lives that prevents us from doing that, whether it's our own sins or the brokenness of other people. But right now, Lord, as we are focused on your word, as we're mindful of what your spirit is saying, I pray that you would begin to do a work in our hearts so that from the moment we walk through those doors, our life of worship would truly continue. And that in everything we say and everything we do, we would give you honor, glory, and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.